everyone. I'm Aditi. And I'm Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And milk. (laughs) Depends what kind of milk you're talking about, right? Welcome to the show, everyone. Got milk? (laughs) Got milk. That is a perfect way to intro this show. (laughs) We're talking about something that sounds downright mind-blowing today. Two women who are recreating, get this, breast milk in a lab. Now, they call it human milk since it wasn't produced in the breast. It's a fascinating prospect, Brett. It is. I mean, it's such a crazy topic and a crazy thing that a lot of people don't think about until you're much older in life. Like when you're growing up, it's not something that you think about. But I mean, there's, you know, I have a wife that has and have two kids that has been through breastfeeding and the difficulties there. And what was it like for you? My husband says it was really stressful for him. It definitely was, but not nearly as stressful for me as it was for my wife. And it's like one of those things you just don't ever think like this is a stressful thing. It's easy, right? Everybody, you know, and man, that is not the case. It is. And I can tell you that I nursed both of my girls till it was, it's almost embarrassing to say how old, so I won't, but (laughs) Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. That's what we always say is Game of Thrones. With my older one, I was a network correspondent. So I have taken my breast pump to mudslides and wildfires. And you're getting ready for those early morning live shots. And I've set my alarm, you know, midnight, one, two in the morning, just to get up and pump before those live shots. I mean, it was a crazy and really stressful existence. It's painful. That's another thing that people don't tell you. It's physically really painful to do. And it's obviously mentally really stressful. And yet, We all go through it because there's so many incredible medical benefits of infants having breast milk. But today we're going to meet two women, Layla Strickland and Michelle Egger, who want to help out all of those new parents. They started a company called Biomilk, which is looking at disrupting the infant formula market. So our question of the day is, is lab made human milk a moonshot? or a mommy must have. Brett, they just raised a new round. They're backed by the Bill Gates Climate Fund. You know, the infant formula market I've read is, I think, 100 billion globally. So there's a real opportunity there. But there's also, there are a lot of hurdles here. Yeah, and you can just start with the science hurdles. Any type of lab-based anything is incredibly expensive and time-consuming process to go from phase one to making, in this case, an ounce to making lots and lots and lots of ounces and to scale these things. I mean, so the amount of capex that it takes or partnerships that you have to create, the number of iterations you have to go through, approvals, especially if it's something that infants are going to be ingesting. There's all these food safety things. So it's really going to be a long journey in front of them, even from where they're at today. And it could take years, but really could be a world-changing idea. And also a lot of challenges from a marketing perspective. Steph, trying to get a new mom to give her newborn lab-made milk, I would imagine that is a really tough problem. I know these ladies have said that part of their strategy is to go through the medical community, get pediatricians to give information about what they're doing. What are your thoughts on that? I think that buy-in is huge because when you deal with lab-grown anything, there are people out there that distrust that, that have lots of questions about that, that don't necessarily understand what that means. And you're also dealing with this delicate situation where you have women who desperately want to feed their babies and yet also want to make sure they're feeding their babies something extremely positive and safe. 
And so I think going through the medical community is really the smartest thing that they can do. Definitely a lot to unpack there. But first, a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. First up, a precision livestock company named Vitelli has raised more than $13 million in Series A funding for coming up with technology that identifies elite members of a herd. By elite, they mean cattle with superior genetics when it comes to fertility, health, how efficiently they feed, and then... The platform uses IVF technology to help reproduce those best performers, thereby shortening the decade it would take to improve a single trait to just a few years. Brett, this seems pretty high tech. Are there a lot of players in this space? And also, how tough of a sell would this be to consumers? It's like we're speeding up Darwinism in a weird way, right? This is kind of another way to frame what this technology is doing. You're trying to keep the best genes. I think what a lot of consumers don't know is that this type of breeding happens across the entire food industry all of the time. And it happens with plants, it happens with animals. It is a very, very, very common practice. And so and when you talk about like, will consumers know, like the, the reality is that consumers aren't even gonna know that it's happening. You know, this technology is in all likelihood something that's not gonna have to go on labels because they're not doing anything other than identifying animals and then focusing breeding efforts on those animals versus coming in and, and doing some sort of genetic modification. They're just speeding up nature in a way. And so it's unlikely that consumers will actually ever know about it. Fascinating. Well, next up, the supplant company has raised nearly $18 million. Its mission is to develop sugars from plant fiber. The startup, it's based in London and uses parts of the plant that aren't typically used in the food system, like wheat straw, oat husks, and corn cobs. The company says its sweeteners have half the calories and lower glycemic index as cane sugar. The company's products are used in some desserts at Thomas Keller's French Laundry and Bouchon Bakeries. Brett, I've heard of a few companies trying to replace sugar. Given all the health issues tied to cane sugar from obesity to diabetes, it seems like this is a pretty hot area. Yeah, for sure. I mean, have you tried any of those desserts yet? Are they good? How do they taste? Well, I haven't been to the French Laundry recently, if that's what you're asking. I'm curious about it, though. But unfortunately, it feels like a lot of the time, these types of replacement foods don't end up tasting like the real thing, even though there's so many of them. So you're right. There are a lot of different companies. And it's a bit of a broader trend than just sugars. It is how do we use parts of the agricultural space that have historically been thrown away or not used in the supply chain? And, and how do we upcycle them into something that has more value than potential like just fertilizer or animal feed? And so if you can upcycle something like a corn husk into a sugar, and everything has sugars in it, right? If you, and so if you can figure out the process, oftentimes the real hard part here is the processing. And so it's really actually cost prohibitive in, to process these things and actually turn them into the sugar that, that are needed. And you have huge companies, like Cargill has a huge business that has just created a sugar alternative. This isn't new for just startups. It's also large enterprises that are thinking about this type of innovation. When you talk about it being cost prohibitive, is it because of the CapEx that's needed or the actual kind of science and lab work behind developing it? It depends is the answer because some facilities and some big corporations will likely have the infrastructure in place to do a lot of the R&D and potentially process things at scale. So they won't need the capital expenditures because they already have it in place. But if you're a startup, it can be really hard for a startup to go from point A to point B in this because you do need that those facilities. You do need processing plants. And it's hard to raise a lot of money 
for CapEx in the venture world. And so oftentimes you'll see them actually build partnerships with a Cargill or with a large enterprise that has different, the manufacturing capability that you need to take something from a husk and process it down to sugar. And so, you know, it's hard to raise capital for that space. And so it, it tends to be a little bit harder place for startups to break into. And so you'll see licensing deals behind the technology instead of them becoming the processor themselves. There's other ways they can do it, but it can be difficult. Finally, speaking of sugar and carbs, LA-based Better Brand just raised $2.5 million in a round led by Alexis Ohanian's fund. It's described as the beyond meat of carbs. It claims to replicate the flavor and texture of a bagel, but without refined carbs. So while a regular bagel can have 50 to 60 grams of carbs, the Better Bagel only has 5 grams of carbs. Guys, this could be a total game changer if it actually tastes like the real thing. Oh, absolutely. But I think one of the key things you said in there is refined carbs, because everything you talk about in nutrition, you do need some of it, right? Am I out of, of left field? I'm not a nutritionist. Is that like the pyramid thing? Is there a, There's a pyramid, a food pyramid, right? Where you have something no. on the bottom and you pyramid it. You need everything in the pyramid. Drilled into our heads in the early 90s. Yeah, carbs have been demonized so much, but they also help fuel our bodies, right? The pyramid that they taught us was wrong, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, wasn't it? It was like potatoes at the very bottom that you should have like six a day. I don't know. You ate six potatoes a day, Steph, when you were growing up? That's a lot of potatoes. I love potatoes. Aditi, what's your kind of favorite kind of bagel? What's your go-to You know, bagel? I like plain or sesame seed. What about you guys? I'm pretty old school, just purist. It's like the cheese pizza. Your girl after my own heart. I'm everything. I love everything bagel. Gotta have an everything bagel. Steph? Oh, I'd say plain or sesame as well. It's always Steph and I on one side and Brett on the other. Yeah, well, I think we always know which side is right. Well, that's up for debate. (laughs) Well, coming up, we'll talk to Layla Strickland and Michelle Egger, who want to replace traditional infant formula with lab-made human milk. Spend any amount of time with Dr. Layla Strickland and Michelle Egger, and you'll realize they're a study of contrasts. Yin and yang, head and heart, and realist and idealist. Yet they are perfectly in sync with their message and equally passionate in their conviction that the $100 billion infant formula industry isn't serving the nutritional needs of newborns. So they're taking on a daunting task to make and eventually produce at scale lab-made human milk for babies. Biomilk was born when Layla, a cell biologist, became a new mom and faced that all-too-common struggle of breastfeeding her newborn. She eventually linked up with Michelle, an MBA student who had worked on the Larabar at General Mills and had interned with the Gates Foundation. Now, armed with a new fundraise and success in the lab, the two women are gearing up for some formidable hurdles, from production to regulation to marketing. How do they take on the challenges? Ultimately, it all comes down to science and seeds that were planted during Layla's childhood. Yeah, I've been interested in cells and cell biology really from very early days. Even in high school, I had a fantastic biology teacher who really turned me on to just how awesome the world is under a microscope and um, thinking about the cell as the fundamental unit of life and the smallest entity on the planet that displays all the properties of something living just really sparked my curiosity early on. And that just followed me right through college where I, I majored in cell and molecular biology 
at the University of Colorado in Boulder and then went on and really got deep into cell biology as a graduate student uh, at Boston College. Did you have a particular area of focus within cell biology? I'm assuming it wasn't what you're doing now. It's not so far afield, actually, but I, as I got really deep into study in graduate school, I really focused on, I was really interested in how cells communicate with each other and control their processes and space and time in order to coordinate sort of higher, more complex behaviors for a tissue or a system. What made you think about making breast milk in a lab? Yeah. For me, it was really started uh, when I became a new mom and started to really realize how difficult that process is. It was a real challenge for me. And I've since learned that it's a very common challenge for new moms, that breastfeeding often just doesn't go the way you expect it to. I took it for granted that I'd breastfeed both of my kids. And as I got into the process, found it very difficult to produce enough milk. So I spent a lot of time thinking about why my body might not make enough and how the cells work in order to produce milk. And at the same time of sort of overlapping that thinking with others who were interested in making food from cells outside the body, was able to kind of think of a, of a way that you could possibly grow these mammary cells that would allow you to collect the product that they make, which is milk. I understand that pain point so well as someone who's a mom of two, and I nursed my older one and nursing my younger one right now. It is such a pain point, and it brings up so much for so many moms and women out there, right? Between the shaming and then the pressure to do it and to get to a certain milestone, whether it's six months or a year and all of that. When you say producing breast milk outside of the human body, it's just mind-boggling to even hear that and know that that's a possibility. Yeah, it's certainly an ambitious project. But the truth is, is that these cells have evolved to do this. They've spent about 200 million years figuring out how to do it. And the core of our technology is based on caring for the cells in, in a way outside the body that's as close to possible as what they are experiencing inside the body. So the programming is all there. The cells, you could say, know their job. They know what to do. They're eager <laughs> to perform this job. And if you give them the right circumstances, the right environment, the right signals, that's certainly a normal function that they are able to carry out outside the body. So you decide to embark on this journey. How did you meet Michelle? Michelle, I think you were working at General Mills on the Larabar, right? Actually, when I met Layla, I was in business school already. So I had already departed General Mills. Previously, I had worked in dairy fermentation, commercialization, everything from idea to shelf in the sexy world of yogurt and cultured dairy products, and then had moved on to Larabar Natural and Organic Snacks and Innovation, which is where I really had the opportunity to think much more deeply about how mothers and parents select food for their children, which I'm not a mom. It wasn't something I personally had experienced, but spent a lot of time really in the mind of a consumer before departing and starting at business school where I met Layla. Tell us a little bit about how you guys met Michelle. I actually was at an internship with the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation summer of 2019 in their private sector partnerships team looking at some innovative solutions to combat malnutrition and, and the birth of stunted babies. And honestly, the work and research blew my mind. I mean, the idea that we could think about preventing children from being born into a nutritional kind of handcuffs where they really aren't able to reach their own cognitive potential and developmental potential was really heartbreaking. And frankly, it felt like, why are we wasting time on other parts of the food sector if we can't even figure out how to give infants the best start in life? 
And so for someone who had no children, wasn't even a woman who scrolled through Instagram looking at baby photos, it was strange to become kind of obsessed with babies and this like limitless potential they represent in that first 1,000 days of life and where milk is so vitally important to their development. And a mutual friend of Layla and I's here in Research Triangle Park in North Carolina saw that I was a soon-to-be-minted MBA with a weird obsession with babies, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and scientist by background, and Layla was a brilliant cell biologist with a weird obsession with trying to nourish babies outside of the body too, <laughs> although hers is more, more realistic as a mom than mine, and introduced us. If you'd ever like to watch my kids, you just let me know, and <laughs> no, you're more than welcome to come over and hang out with them. They're great, no. I promise. They never make any trouble. They're wonderful boys. <laughs> You bring up a really great point about that nourishment that they get, that newborns get in those first few weeks and months is so foundational for the rest of their life as far as health, mental, physical, everything. Yeah, it was honestly kind of astounding and horrifying as someone who's not a parent to be introduced to just the practices that infant nutrition had had, how antiquated formula really was. And while based in fact, to be able to allow a child to survive, really not enable children to thrive. And so, you know, you even discontinue the shame and guilt that parents experience, even just as a scientist looking at what we're providing options for, for parents was terrible. I mean, it just, it frankly wasn't adequate. And we figured out how to put a, an incredibly expensive and high powered computer into your hand, but we're still offering you powdered cow's milk to feed your child. That's going to give them the start for the rest of their lives in their brain. I mean, it, it just felt so backwards in comparison to how technology has moved. And so when Layla and I were introduced and our mutual friend called her, and I quote, a crazy lady trying to make milk outside of the body, it was so clearly like, why has no one done this before? We still get asked that question all the time. Why has no one else tried this? And, you know, misogyny is not an appropriate answer in most company. But, you know, I do think there was an element of really only mothers were looking at this for so many generations of moms of wanting more, but not really knowing how to even ask for more and frankly, not being listened to when they were. And it took a mom and a scientist to be like, there's a huge opportunity here. I love a little bit of crazy in founders. You have to be, <laughs> have I mean, entrepreneurship rich. is so hard. Like you have to be crazy to try it. Otherwise you're not going to make it through the ups and downs for sure. We've got the craziness in spades, I think. <laughs> Just, yeah. In the simplest way possible, how are you able to create milk outside the human body? Yeah, well, the process starts, of course, with the mammary epithelial cell. This is the type of cell that inside the body is responsible for absorbing all of the nutrients and goodies from mom's bloodstream and converting them into the components of milk. And in the body, all of these components that make up milk are secreted into the mammary gland where it's stored until nursing, until it's withdrawn by the baby or by a breast pump. So we're trying to reproduce something similar to that that process inside a bioreactor outside the body where we are growing the same cell type and trying to provide an environment that really matches what happens in the body so that we can reproduce the same behaviors that allow the cells to absorb those, those nutrients from one side of the system and then convert them into milk and secrete that out of the other side of the system. What is the hardest part about it? Hmm... 
I think the, the biggest challenges that remain to be solved are going to be around figuring out how to make a system that actually can produce this at a scale that would be able to support a baby. <laughs> Scientifically, I would imagine such a complicated problem because there's all sorts of hormonal impacts, influences. There's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the milk that I'm producing for my baby is very different, even at each feeding than right. you are for yours. So how do you right. solve for some of those things? Yeah, I mean, one of the fundamental challenges we faced it from the beginning is how variable human milk is, even from the same woman. It's like we're trying to make a product, but we don't have a standard to compare ourselves against to know how close are we to breast milk. And so that's something we've done a lot of developmental work on so far is just even trying to understand what is breast milk so that we can then compare ourselves to that in some way versus what is infant formula and see where we fall in between So, I mean, I come from a generation where a lot of kids grew up on infant formula. What is wrong with infant formula? (laughs) Well, I first would have to say both of my kids also received a fair amount of infant formula. When you're on, there is no, I would say there's a shortage of human milk available on the planet. And so infant formula is the solution you go to. And I, I also like to point out the infant formula for its flaws, which we can touch on, but it's a product that has had a pretty revolutionary impact in the world in terms of making it possible for women to join the workforce and participate in the economy, making it possible for dads to participate in the care of their babies. And it's also, you know, safe and effective when it's used properly. Children grow up on it and have fantastic outcomes. And so I don't like to disparage infant formula. I certainly wouldn't want to contribute to any shame that any mother might be feeling if she is using infant formula. I get it. And I I think that anybody who is trying to feed a baby is a hero, no matter what way they're trying, they're going about it. So I don't like to be too hard on infant formula. But the fact is, is that it's predominantly made from cow's milk modified in some ways in order to try to more closely approximate breast milk. But because milk itself is so species specific and so tailored to the developmental needs of of a particular type of infant, its composition is just very different between cows and humans. And when you're starting with that cow's milk as your base formulation, there are certain features of human milk that you will never be able to replicate. There's no way to modify that formulation in a way that gets you to the same benefits of human milk. You say that it's not bioidentical to human milk. What makes it different? A couple of things. One of the key differences is that there are certain components of milk that are produced by other cell types. I mentioned that we're basing our product on the mammary epithelial cells and its biosynthesis. But breast milk also, of course, contains immunoglobulins that are synthesized by the immune system. And without including those cells in our culture, we wouldn't be adding an immunoglobulin component to our cell-cultured human milk. Earlier this summer, you announced that for the first time you created human milk outside the human body, but you didn't call it a prototype. How come? Yeah, for us, we're going for the whole kit and caboodle every single time. So, you know, is this something that I would feed to a baby today? No, we still have a lot of optimization to do. We need a lot more consistency in the experiments that we're getting data back from. And frankly, like, I've described, you know, we're learning faster than the world knows a lot about breast milk. So prototypes be darned. We really are pretty (laughs) focused on getting all the way there. And, you know, we'll be excited when we have an MVP. You can't see my air quotes, but a minimum viable product 
you know, you, you can't really test an MVP on babies. You really have to get all the way there. Be confident that what you have is what you'd want to feed your own child before it's something you'd bring into the market. I was curious. I mean, and so like with our two kids, my our first child was breastfed. Our second wasn't, not by choice. And so it is interesting. I'm curious, though, I, I think something that would have gone through, I, I mean, I hesitate to like put, like speak for my wife, but through her head is like, is it my milk or not, right? And so I'm curious around for you all, is the grand vision to allow like each mom to create the milk from like themselves and just grow it outside because they might not be able to produce enough themselves for whatever reason? No, we actually talk about kind of both paths as an option. I mean, one opportunity for us is because we're using human cells, we can use human cells from an individual. We can make a customized product that their cells would be able to produce under normal conditions, likely both male or female of those cells by gender, which is, of course, a really interesting point as you think about accessibility for families that traditionally otherwise would absolutely be reliant on infant formula. And at the same time, well, that's a really amazing technological breakthrough. And, and we're really excited to think about where there's medical need or incompatibility need where that might be a really beautiful solution you're not going to reach mothers in rural Bangladesh with that kind of product, right? And at the end of the day, we do this work because we're unlocking the potential of of infants, of, of humanity. We really believe that we're going to be able to give differential opportunities to children based on what their parents have as options to feed them. And you're not going to make a custom product at a price point that can really spread throughout the world. After you came together, you had to raise venture capital money. What was that process like? Uh, an accident. <laughs> Maybe that's not something I should say. No, that's perfect. Yeah, we genuinely, I mean, we knew that there was going to need capitalization to make the science go, to be able to have enough cash to, to experiment and work. But we actually got into fundraising by looking for advisors, mentors, people to, to help us and to guide us much more than raising straight capital. And not necessarily for our Series A. You know, in our seed round, it's much easier to get people who just want to kind of co-create and spitball and, and help you. Series A is very intentional. <laughs> and you're going off and looking for us specific partnership criteria around diversity, uh, women at a board level, impact in their portfolio focused on, you know, sustainability or health or innovation. But fundraising is fun and exhausting, I would say, for us at Biomilk. It's amazing to share all the progress we've made, all of the big vision we have for the world. And it's such a relatable challenge that we have for so many people out there that to talk through is we get to learn a lot about a lot of people's families very quickly in every meeting we have. But it's also really tiring to defend science that we know is working, to try to explain the challenges women really are facing. You know, we frequently would get like, well, isn't a wet nurse an alternate? Or why can't you just go to a milk bank? And it's really hard to step back and not to be like, because that's not an option, you know? Like, I don't think you actually understand. And, and instead be really logical and thoughtful and and still defensive of women of this is a not a problem you can ignore anymore. There's a huge market because it's a huge issue, not because it's just profitable for other people to look at. So it's a wild ride every single time. And uh, we'll look at what Series B looks like next. <laughs> How many pitches did you have to do? We spent several months just pitching. I mean, just taking meetings all day, every day. Michelle and I were meeting up at a uh, co-working space that we had access to through her association with Duke for her MBA. And we were just had meetings back to back all day to talk to people about biomilk and what we wanted to do and got a lot of feedback. I mean, I, I don't even know what the count is of how many we, we did. No idea 
hundreds, I don't, <laughs> thousands. <laughs> did you find that for the most part, did people get it? I think people understood that it was a challenge. I think not everybody got that this was, it's not a decision. So much of the power of decision-making is really taken out of a parent's hands and it just becomes a series of trade-offs. And so, you know, I think there was understanding of like, oh yeah, a lot of people have trouble with this or maybe they want something different, but I don't think the depth of understanding, unless you're someone who's been a parent who doesn't have a way to feed your child, is something you can even really explain. And it was clear when we'd speak to investors who had a partner or themselves had struggled to breastfeed or had a family member, I mean, we basically got to skip like the first half of the deck because they were like, yeah, 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 I get it. It's a serious issue. Like, let's dive in on how we fix it. But it sounds like you've had a good outcome to that fundraising process. Yeah, we're very excited to announce that we actually just completed our Series A. Woohoo! Congratulations. You know, in this space right now, there's a lot of capital flowing around. Everybody in the investor world says it's frothy, which I think is a dumb term, but I'm going to use it anyway. And even with it being frothy, you know, we're finding partners that genuinely believe in our work. At some point also, I mean, you've had seed funding from the Bill Gates Climate Fund, right? Which pretty much has every Forbes richest person in the world, you know, listed on that. Like That's a who's who. How did that deal come about? So Breakthrough Energy Ventures was our lead in our seed round, which is the fund you're referring to. I affectionately call them the Billionaires Fund, which I probably shouldn't say in recording, but I, I do. And they are so forward thinking in terms of how do we solve problems upstream, both that affect climate and affect people. And we were a pretty non-traditional investment for them. If you look at their portfolio, they're heavily in energy and sustainable products and production. But we represent for them a stealth sustainability product. You know, Stealth sustainability is really where we get to talk to parents about solving a problem for them, something that's a serious issue in their day-to-day lives. And that's the reason they want to believe in the product, not because it's preventing cows from producing milk that goes into infant formula necessarily. And I like to think that we represent a new age of products where people aren't going to be focused on making consumers feel bad about their choices for the planet, but instead feel good about their choices for themselves. So speaking about that future, what does this look like in five, 10 years? What kind of, can you share some of the big vision for us? Sure. So our North Star is always whole human milk. We just believe the structure function constellation of all of those 2,500 plus macro and micronutrients in their exact place is really what provides the nutritional benefit of milk. And that's really darn hard. (laughs) So five years for us is bringing that product to market through regulatory approvals. And it's also exploring the other ways our product can be applicable from a bioactivity perspective for human health. It's one thing for someone to eat a burger made from a cultured meat, for instance, but it's a whole other thing to get someone to give their newborn milk made in a lab. How do you convince new parents to try your product once it does come to market? New parents are surprisingly nuanced in how they view their own food beliefs versus the food beliefs that they want to extend to their children. And I think when we first started on this journey, we thought, oh gosh, that convincing consumers is a huge hurdle, right? Like this is going to be super scary to most parents. It just feels like pigs flying in terms of a technology basis of of understanding. But we've been surprisingly heartwarmed, frankly, by the, the acceptance. I think we take for granted how incredibly emotionally exhausting 
feeding children, making the trade-offs between feeding children, growing those children into hopefully happy little human beings that contribute to society really is for parents. I think we've seen in COVID in the last year that amplified at a new level of discussion on the American psyche to some extent. And infant nutrition is a big part of that. And so a lot of parents are really open to if you can prove that it's safe, if you can go through the protocols that give me confidence that it's good for my child according to, you know, regulatory bodies and according to scientific principles that I can understand, it's got to be better than powdered milk coming from a cow, right? And they're right. I mean, it's just kind of natural intuition that millions of years of evolution have gotten us to a place of breast milk optimized for babies. And while we might not be bioidentical to breast milk, we are going to be as close as possible as we've ever been before in, in humankind to getting up to a product that's genuinely better than the other options that exist out there today besides breastfeeding at the breast. I'm going to give you guys a series of questions, one word answers. More fun building a brand at a large enterprise or as a startup? Startup. Large enterprise. You have so much more money, man. (laughs) What's harder, the cell biology or building a brand? Cell biology. (laughs) (laughs) Best kids TV show. Mine's Wild Kratz. I love Wild Kratz. Wild Kratz is good. Mine is Yo Gabba Gabba. Oh, yeah. I don't have any children, so <laughs> I'm going to date myself and say Arthur because that's probably the last child show I watched in great detail. All my nieces and nephews are obsessed with Bluey. Oh, I've heard Bluey's good. Get the game right, Steph. One word. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm, we're really bad at this. The Smurfs? I mean, I'm old school. One word, Adi. Sorry, Come I on. know. I'm even See? part of this. The Smurfs. Steph, you got us off track. And now now the train's off the track. Okay. All right. We learned that the one word to describe Layla is crazy. What's the one word that describes Michelle? Powerful. (laughs) Also, I wouldn't describe her as crazy. I call it visionary these days. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate the update. (laughs) (laughs) Last one. When you were raising your Series A, were you questioned more on the science behind what you were building or the ability to build a brand in this market specifically. Oh yeah, the science then. Cool, that's all I got. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. I'm Mel. I'm Mike. And we're the co-founders of Parkday. At Parkday, we're building data-driven food programs for top companies. We're helping to draw employees back into the office as the return to work begins. And we're also hoping to help individual eaters to prevent the paralysis of scrolling seamless day and night to decide what they're actually going to eat. How are you solving that problem? So the way that we solve that problem is we actually put a mobile app directly in the hands of the people who are going to eat the food, and we understand their preferences and feed that into our culinary engine instead of make them browse choices endlessly to come up with the right food programs for individuals and the entire group. How do you take over the world with this idea? So essentially, at the end of the day, if we can change consumer behavior for people to be okay with outsourcing their food decisions, similar to the idea of a private chef for professional athletes, We can shift 
one consumer behavior, but also there's going to be a massive ripple across the supply chain. We can design food systems that source ingredients from farmers three months in advance and overall create a more sustainable, better world for everybody involved. Today, I'm here with Seba, CEO and co-founder of Ubi Meats. Seba, what problem are you solving? Hi, Brad. We are solving the problem that more than 90% of the meat worldwide consume is being graded by humans, visual inspectors, and they get it wrong more than 10% of the time. So what you're saying is that 90% of the meat that you and I consume is still graded by human beings and I and, and the way it's always been done? Unfortunately, yes, and that's why the digitalization of the meat industry is very important nowadays. So how are you solving this problem? What are you doing? We created a meat grading and monitoring platform that leverages artificial intelligence and machine learning that allows the meat processors to measure and document the quality assurance in real time. So you're setting up cameras in meat facilities and it just checks it out and tells you how good the meat is? There you go. How this was done before was with big x-ray machines, so which was not easy to afford to the meat processors. So now what we are providing them is via a phone that are convenient and affordable. So anyone can take a photo, upload to the cloud, and in seconds they get the result in, in real time. So the meat that I eat will no longer be graded just by human eyes and it's probably going to be a lot more accurate. How are you going to take over the world? We expect to keep expanding and with the lack of quality assurance, like what we are living right now with the pandemic, we expect all this to take it to the next level, to uh, integrate into other stakeholders like retailers, restaurants, uh, and even regulatory agencies. So the idea is that we'll have traceability across the entire food system. So it starts at the meat manufacturing plants, but everybody will know the quality grades and understand and be able to trust it because it's coming from technology that's proven. There you go, and we plan to trace from nose to tail the cow. So going back to our original question, Brett, is lab-made human milk a moonshot or a mommy must-have? Eventually, when it comes out. Man, I think it could be both, potentially. It could be a moonshot and a mommy must-have. So I think it has the potential to be both. Steph, after listening to them, I mean, it seems like this can really become a reality, right? It's just a matter of how long it'll take. 100%. I think they were amazing. And it, it sounds like they're approaching it in a really intelligent sort of go-to-market way. Cool. I'm just dreaming of all of the sleep that I could have recovered if I had that custom-made milk that Brett was talking about. Yeah, I think that's a really cool just like idea I, I, is to think about that world. So much opportunity there. Well, great show, guys. We'll see you next week. See you next week.